I'm Dr. Rose Aslan, and I'm a transformational life coach, breathwork teacher, and scholar of religion who supports helpers, rebels, misfits, marginalized, and spiritual and spiritually curious folks. Welcome to Rahma Throws, where I create a bold space of warmth, understanding, and pluralism in a world that often feels chaotic, polarized, and judgmental. You are not alone, and the stories I share here will reinforce this. Each episode will delve into inspiring stories, practical tips, and thought-provoking and heartfelt conversations with thought leaders, healers, coaches, mental health professionals, and other individuals who are part of the quiet revolution of women healing around the world. So join me on this podcast exploration as we explore what happens when we allow compassion into our lives, one story at a time. Rahim. Today, I am joined by Dr. Amina Wadud, a.k.a. the Lady Imam, who needs little introduction. She is well known as one of the foremothers of Islamic feminism and has been studying and teaching Islam for over 50 years. An outspoken activist and scholar with a focus on Islam, justice, gender, and sexuality, in this conversation, I ask Amina questions beyond her public persona about her personal spiritual and healing journey. Amina describes her spiritual life as one of different phases and how we need to follow an approach of gentleness and self-compassion to live a life of presence and connection to the divine. Rather than teach an obligation-centered Islam, Amina proposes that each individual meet themselves where they are at in life and practice spirituality according to their ability and capacity. She emphasizes that only by trusting oneself and focusing within can one begin to experience peace and stop focusing on the noise of the outside world. Keep listening to hear many more gems on embodying spirituality and living a good life from Dr. Amina Wadud. I begin as I always begin in the name of Allah, whose grace I see in this and all other matters. I ask Allah's forgiveness for any errors that I might make due to the frailty of being human. Okay, Dr. Amina Wadu, it's such a blessing and honor to have you on Rahma with Rose today. Thank you for finding the time. I know it wasn't easy to find a time when we're both available. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, this is absolute honor. And I know that a lot of my listeners are going to really look forward to this episode because you're not going to need much introduction for the people who already listen to my show, but they know a lot about your scholarship, your activism, 
But I think what people don't know a lot about is more about your spiritual and healing journey specifically and what went on behind the scenes. So I would love to talk about the behind the scenes Amina would do and to learn more of that if you're up for that. Up for that, definitely. <laughs> Wonderful. Because we see so many activists and scholars like yourself doing so much out there. And I think it's really important to also know what's happening behind the scenes, what happens when we reach a point of burnout, what is it like for people, and then how do people uh, recover from burnout? I know it's been a long process for you, and I think it'll be a healing conversation for many who listen to this. So if we can get started, I'd love to ask you, do you remember when you first got interested in spirituality as a whole? I think <clears throat> before there were words that sort of made categories that were separate, I was always interested in the esoteric. My father was a Methodist minister. So I was raised in a God-conscious household. In fact, I was raised in the God of love. And I took the name Wydoon. But in university, as an undergraduate, I really started to examine religious traditions other than Christianity, and I became a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I still practice meditation today. I belong to a tarika that does meditation. Mm -hmm. And I coming home to Islam, which now is almost 51 years, it allowed me to bring the love for my Christian uh, upbringing and uh, Buddhism allowed me to bring the um, necessity for awareness of oneself uh, in a very present manner. Um, it is still of my, uh, you know, practice and my perspective. So I've never had a negative experience mm. with regard to religion. But, you know, when they start to distinguish in terms of spirituality, I think that my spirituality has phases. I've gone mm. through different phases in my life with regard to it. It, it wasn't static. And I think that's a blessing as well. It was a journey and I'm still on the journey, I guess mm -hmm. I should say. <laughs> mm -hmm. Would you be willing to take us through some of those phases? If in whatever kind of format suits you? Sure. I think, first of all, I was fascinated with the reality of knowing that different people approach the divine in different ways. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I knew what way was going to work for me. And I think kind of an obsession uh, with sincerity. So I want to do something that I know for sure aligns me in, in the highest level of integrity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get challenged with regard to things. You know, I still have dreams where it's like, will I go and pray the Muslim ritual act of worship, the Salah, would I do that without taking the proper ablutions? I like, mm -hmm. I still dream about that. And even in South Africa, when they asked me to be a diva, to give the khutbah for the Friday prayer, because I was menstruating at the time, I made the khutbah, but I couldn't join the line of mm -hmm. prayer. And I'm like, nobody will know there's like this momentum. And I said, Allah knows, and I just stepped to the back. So I think for me, everything has to do with challenges to myself in terms of how I perceive of being in my integrity for what I do and how I do it. 
I think that's a part of, I mean, I'd rather love a law really than to love a law because somebody makes you feel like somehow I'm obligated to do something. Mm-hmm. And checking myself continuously for that integrity, I, I think that's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's an ongoing struggle. And the phases in my life, to me, I think are more about the conditions that might allow me to simply, and I use this word seriously, indulge um, in my spiritual practices. Mm. Uh, when my children were little, uh, and I was a single mom, I had a lot of things on my plate. And my Ibada was like very functional, um, not very uh, healing. Um, and now that, you know, my kids are adults and they're having kids, I have the luxury of simply giving time to my own spiritual reflections. And I, I consider that to be a phase as well, because it was not something that was always available to me because I had too many responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I just have me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm enjoying the privilege of being able to focus you know, on my spirituality and not have to worry that somebody is challenged by whatever things happen to kids at different stages of their lives. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I kind of think that my faces were like that, that it has to do with how easy it was for me to access the kinds of things that I now find are very healing for me. It was not always available to me because I was just like, I consider myself to have had three jobs, uh, Mm -hmm. full-time mom, full-time place to make money, which happened to be a university. You and I both left it early. And... uh, I was a full-time community volunteer. I mean, most of the work that I did on a voluntary basis. Yeah. So I was very much centered on faith through worship, which in fact, through deeds, you know, like, yeah, more focusing on serving the community than I was focused on, like, just taking quiet time, doing healing practices, which for me at my age are not as much of a luxury as I try to make them seem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're a necessity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I I do feel like for me, the journey was partially in relationship to the convenience of being able to actually participate. Yeah, this is such a much needed perspective. I say that as a single mother who often struggles to do everything I want to do, because like you said, we have the job of being a mom and community service and professional life. And it's a lot. And so many women come to me and tell me that they feel that they're not doing everything they should be, that God won't love them because mostly they're in the stage of motherhood, of being deeply dedicated to their jobs. And then they feel they're deficient, right? What would you tell people, uh, women and men and anyone who is struggling with this challenge of not being able to do everything they want to do and this approach of thinking of our life as many chapters and we're in one chapter. What would you tell these people? I actually have people that I counsel on this Mm -hmm. because I try to tell people that the forms of worship that we are familiar with, Mm -hmm. 
through faith of our birth or the faith that we chose or whatever, that these forms of worship are available to the degree that we are available for them. And I truly believe that sort of allowing yourself to be in touch with yourself uh, spiritually is a job that you have to take on. I don't feel like it just happens organically. Mm -hmm. I feel Mm -hmm. like devotion, the word that I use is devotion. I feel like devotion wants you to be Mm -hmm. devoted. Mm -hmm. So I try to get people to understand that you take spaces, however small they are, to just stop and be present Mm -hmm. with the presence of Allah. Because Allah is always present and we sometimes are busy. Mm-hmm. And so it's not to say that being busy is good or bad. It's simply to say that for me, I see that the internal life requires the Sufi calls, the polishing of the heart. So there's a kind of notion in that metaphor, first of all, that the polishing is work. Mm-hmm. Um, the end result, however, is your capacity to be able to taste that presence of Allah wow. more readily because mm-hmm. you have never required of yourself something because of an external, uh, you know, push, but rather because internally you're wanting to find your presence in the presence of Allah. And it doesn't happen 24 seven to mm-hmm. anybody. And so whatever, I just try to get people to take increments so that they carve out a little bit in their busy time for themselves with Allah. And there's no measurement of that experience of Allah's presence. So just two seconds of it is enough for you to drink from for a very long time. Um, But I think sometimes when we're busy doing as many things as we do, I know in my case, I tended to singularly focus on the Islamic ritual of Salah. Mm-hmm. And that's not always available to people. Mm-hmm. And I tried to get people to accept that they can uh, perform in accordance to their location. And that is what Allah accepts from them. Again, there's no external measurement, like this is the right amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're taught the five are obligatory, mm-hmm. uh, and that's great. And sometimes I actually manage to do the five myself, and sometimes mm-hmm. I don't. And yeah. so I have a battle with myself sometimes of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Acceptance is an important part of the journey of spirituality. You can't be who you are not. And if you want to you know, the say, you know yourself, you know a lot, you must know yourself. Mm-hmm. And in knowing yourself, you, you really, and I have still to work on accepting myself mm-hmm. as I am. Mm-hmm. So I don't make a judgment about the times in my life when I couldn't enjoy uh, the kind of spirituality that I have the privilege to enjoy now because I did also do service. Mm-hmm. So that in Arabic is both work, is both service, and it's devotion. And so I think that I kind of grew into being a servant mm. through service. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't begrudge it. I mean, it was necessary for me to survive under the circumstances that I was in. Yeah. 
I mean, I very much enjoy this privilege right now, but I, I didn't always have it. And so yeah. I can't look at when it's not available to me mm -hmm. as a judgment against me. Yeah. Otherwise, I couldn't be present now. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so curious how you support others and, and how you work on this yourself of working through that feeling of guilt and obligation and often the sphere-based approach, consequence-based uh, approach to ritual in Islam specifically. How do you work through that and counsel others to work through it? Because it's very well, um, prevalent it, among Muslims. It's, it's pervasive, yeah. Well, most of my work is in the context of people who are experiencing um, oppression or mm -hmm. uh, omission, invisibility due to the structures that that dominate um, patriarchal, hegemonic, binary structures. Um, and I find that people yearn for a spiritual center. And um, so what I try to do is to help them to remember that they are the vehicle mm -hmm. and, and, and that you are okay where you are because mm -hmm. Allah accepts you where you are. Mm -hmm. And that the only way that you go forward is that you do this as a partnership with Allah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're lucky to also have community because, mm -hmm. again, the invisibility stuff is because some people are excluded from places. And so when people can draw from that spiritual well, Again, I find that they're not quite as thirsty, so they're even better able to do the work that they also are called to do. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned your first introduction to spirituality was Christianity, then Buddhism. And as someone who was formerly Buddhist before I became Muslim, I was very intrigued by that because for me, it was such a important phase of my spiritual life and it really helped me go through a very abusive and difficult childhood and that's why I'm forever grateful to my experience of Buddhism. I would love to know how your Sufi community and how you integrate Buddhism and Islam, Islamic spirituality together because for me it sounds normal and every day but for a lot of Muslims they're like what? How? Please, So please explain how these go together. Well first of all my civic community is 100% Muslim. They don't identify with Buddhism, but I mentioned my journey because my journey began with a practice. It didn't begin, but my journey included a practice of meditation, which I gave up when I took Shahada. However, I was fortunate to join a Sufi community that practices Muraqaba intentionally. Mm -hmm. And so I not only returned to it, but I've had different kinds of experiences with it than I had when I was living in a Buddhist ashram, namely that I feel more deeply about silence and stillness mm -hmm as one of the aspects mm. um, of our spiritual well-being. Mm. So I that's why I say I retain the benefits mm -hmm. of growing up with mm -hmm. my father as a Methodist minister who was, in my experience, very loving. Mm. And he was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher sometimes because he was evangelical. 
but I loved him and I loved his love of God. Mm-hmm. It's just, I began to have certain curiosities theologically about this father-son thing. It just, it didn't always mm-hmm. work for me. So I gave up all gods to become a Buddhist because it is not a theist tradition. Mm-hmm. And instead, I began to really understand the notion of the sacred as pervasive in the universe. Again, the question is not whether or not it is present. The question is whether or not we're present to it. And mm-hmm. Buddhism taught me that. And then doing this again with my shake, I've been with my shake about 25 years, just sort of rounded it out because I felt the sense of direction that Islam gives me needed as well the sense of being centered that I got from Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so now they're all together. I, I identify as an eclectic Muslim because mm-hmm. I do want to retain the history of my own spiritual work in the ways in which it nurtured me. I don't want to feel like some of that was wrong or bad mm-hmm. just because it might not be what everybody does. Mm-hmm. So I hold on to it through my own self-naming. Mm. Meaning myself as as an eclectic Muslim. Yeah, you know, I love. I'm not, that. I'm not afraid. Yeah, I'm yeah. not afraid of other things that have that have worked for me in this difficult mm. journey. Yeah, I love that. I might start using that term myself, eclectic Muslim, because I was often searching for how do you describe yourself when there's various lineages and traditions that resonate with you and that have wisdom and and teachings and healing. And we can't just discard them. So I appreciate that perspective a lot. And I think others will as well. So we talked about your spiritual journey, which started when you were very young. What about your healing journey? Would you say it's parallel or did that start later on when you intentionally started to realize that you needed to do a little bit more that often there comes a time when people feel broken, just like stuck? What was it for you? What triggered that start to walk the healing path? That's an interesting question because I guess I have to think whether or not I actually identify as having a healing journey personally Mm. because I don't have a memory of any religious Mm. experience being negative. Mm. I didn't have to heal in that way. I think we all come from dysfunctional families mm-hmm. and some obviously are more uh, severe than others. Mine was only one where literally the poverty that we experienced was, mm-hmm. was crippling and led to certain traumas like mm-hmm. being evicted at the age of 10, mm-hmm. having my whole world turned upside mm-hmm. down. I didn't understand. Um, but uh, because I have been really focused on the sacred since I was mm. a teenager. Mm. I guess I could say I was blessed in that I didn't have any negative. I had some theological questions. I didn't have any negative about my experience of being Christian. didn't have anything negative about my experience of being a Buddhist. Everything fed into who I am now. Mm. And so I'm not really on a healing journey except that I'm getting old, you know, I have, I have physical things mm-hmm. that I have to constantly tend to. Mm-hmm. But I also do these in a loving way because mm-hmm. I've chosen not to take medication for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. 
based on like back injury and arthritis. Instead, twice a week, I, in my own home, I create the perfect spa condition and I roll with therapy and gel mask. Mm. Finally learn how to make a playlist <laughs> on, on those channels that you purchase and everything. I never knew how to make playlists until the last mm-hmm. few years. And I just blissfully enjoy two and three hour massages twice mm-hmm. a week, once for two hours, once for three hours. Heavenly. And it's so centering. And mm-hmm. I recommend it to people because of course here as part of the culture. So they're very cheap. Mm-hmm. But I really recommend it to people in terms of what we call self-care. Mm-hmm. The thing about me is that I did not, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to heal, but I wasn't really very good at self-care. Mm-hmm. I was too busy with this many children or this many responsibilities. And now I have no excuse. The purpose of which is to, again, bring me to a place of presence in the presence of a law. And especially women, we are, we're so deeply into the care of others that learning how to care for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that means in terms of trauma, and therefore healing, but also just in terms of maintenance, because it's not a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. This loving yourself is something that you have to put as much attention into as you have into a partner or a child or children um, or other things in the world that people do love beauty. I love beauty. I love nature. Um, learning to love myself is still an ongoing challenge. Mm-hmm. I replicated sometimes by certain things and it reminds me to, as they say, stop and smell the roses because when I'm there for three hours, I don't have to think about anything mm-hmm. other than being at one with the law. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I recommend it. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we all wish we could do that, right? We'll all move to Indonesia and get massa- three-hour massages <laughs> twice a week. I would love that too. When you're younger and juggling all those different responsibilities, did you have a similar self-care practice or, or is this a more recent addition? Yeah, I, I did not know that taking care of myself meant that I had to devote some time mm. to it. I didn't understand that because mm. first of all, my health was you know, very good. Mm-hmm. And so I just ran. And mm. learning to, as I said, put myself into the formula of what has to happen in order for me to say that I'm well, that was a learning curve. I noticed that Muslim women in one of the communities that I lived in when I was still teaching they would do these pamper me plus was the name that they gave to this. And I mean, my daughter loves to tell people, I mean, I never even had a pedicure manicure until I was in my forties. It's sort of like, it's one of the cheapest things you can do for yourself and you can take yourself off to get it done. And it takes an hour, maybe if they're quick and maybe 40 minutes or something like that. The idea of the Pamper Me Plus group really brought me to the awareness that just because you're really strong and really happy, Mm. it doesn't mean that you need to neglect just this loving yourself. I have a song that I play on my special 
channel that I made called the spa channel, I will be gentle with myself. I will only go as fast as the slowest part of me feels safe to go. And I didn't have any consumption of that. I just ran. And that's why for me, the language that I use is being present in the presence of a law, which is something to me I experience most powerfully with meditation. The reward from that is unbelievable. And yet I did not take advantage of it because I was too busy running around taking care of things that were important to be taken care of. Yeah. So we do sometimes have to learn to put ourselves in a formula and to not always think that just because we're blessed with good health, that that means that we're supposed to run ourselves ragged. That's like really difficult for some people to see. And it was difficult for me. Yeah, this is so essential for everyone to hear. And that doesn't matter how strong, healthy, how good you think you're doing, you still need to treat yourself well and with care and gentleness. And thank you for saying that. And I say this every day, all the time to everyone, and they still don't hear it. So it doesn't matter how many times I say it and others say it. I want to repeat it again and again. What do you think was the turning point that made you say, hey, oh, it actually, like, I need this. What happened? Was it gradual? Was it all of a sudden you tried something? And um, My kids grew up. <laughs> you had more time. I'm sorry to say it really was very practical. I think in some ways felt like my mom didn't do everything that I wanted her to do. So I wanted to be a better mom than my mom. Mm -hmm. The illusion that I had that there was such a thing. And so I chose to defer to what in the... Christian upbringing that I had, I can characterize as to be good, you have to, to work hard. And I internalized that to the place where I didn't really have an understanding to transcend these narrow kinds of frames for goodness and to see goodness as fulfilling the purpose that Allah has brought me to, mm. to this earth to, to fulfill, mm. to align myself with that purpose. Mm -hmm. And I have surmised that you cannot know that purpose if you don't quiet your entire being to be present in the presence of Allah. I mean, you can do good things. I'm not trying to say that people can be non-religious and do good things, but I'm just saying that in terms of my journey, learning to put myself into the formula, as difficult as it was for me, has led me to encourage others to understand that you, it's like this thing I say to my grandchildren, yes, you are the center of the universe. And then I say, and so is everyone else. So it is not a selfish journey, which notice in the beginning, I said something about indulge. Like it's, it's not a selfish journey, but I so clearly remember when I did not have the options to pray that I went in the mosque mm -hmm. because 
I'm a single parent. There's no way I'm going to go off and leave my kids. And I can't afford a babysitter for that many hours, that many days. Mm -hmm. So it was just something that was not even on my mind, except that I knew it was happening. And it's, as again, I believe that, that, that we have to work at our spiritual wellness, but it is not just for the work of it. It is also for, I mean, I had the experience of going to all of the Kwara with for all 20 of the Rakhads with a Hafas and everything. <clears throat> and what that was like when I was in the state of Michigan, which has very late Ishtars. So how long those went into the night? I'm not a night person. And then you have to get up at three o'clock to eat. And there came a time in that one experience that I had of it until I was in COVID. In COVID, I made 29 because now I don't have a, a break from menstruation. So COVID, I made 29 but I would because we were just a group of people that did it online. But to feel that transcendence of this continual state of worship, wow, that was so special. And I could not indulge in it when I was full-time parenting with the kids at various stages of their lives. So I think learning to put yourself in the formula is a task that is not learned just at one time. Mm -hmm. Like you do it and then you slip. Like, okay, I'm rejuvenated now. I'm inspirited, as they say. Let me just go out and do a bunch of service mm -hmm. again for everybody. And then you're just exhausted. So, I mean, I still work to exhaustion sometimes, I admit, but... I'm trying to do better with that. Yes. I tell people I'm working and being a non-workaholic. Excellent. Well, this is I'm great. A, yeah. I'm a workaholic and I have to work at not being a workaholic yeah. <laughs> because it's not, it's not, it doesn't come natural to me. Yeah. Well, I appreciate um, you sharing because there's a lot of workaholics out there and they need to hear that for workaholic, you have to work at not being a workaholic. And it's something that you're modeling really beautifully. So thank you for sharing that with us too. Yeah. Question for you, something that you didn't actually mention, but I have to ask. So it seems like you're very skilled at differentiating between Muslims and Islam because you're saying you've never experienced trauma or difficulty within Islam. But I think those of us who followed that you've experienced many negative, you've had many negative experiences with Muslims attacking you, critiquing you. And I, I'm sure it's much worse than we've even seen in terms of the messages you must get for your, what people think is controversial statements and actions about Islam within the Muslim community. So I would love to hear how you came to such a healthy perspective First of all, what it was like and what it's like to receive these kinds of comments and attacks. I'm sure it's been decades, unfortunately, and you've had death threats against you. So how have you dealt with that, first of all? And then how do you differentiate between Muslims and Islam so well? Because so many Muslims I know really struggle with that. And they confuse Islam with Muslims. And that really is a detriment to their practice of Islam and their connection to Allah. So I guess we can start with first, how have you dealt with the attacks? And then we'll go to the next question. But I'm so curious to hear your well, answer. I do have to say that there is more sensation than is reality. First of all, mm -hmm. I literally never had any death threats. Okay. But there was a security measurement taken out and I became <clears throat> sort of under the homeland security about my actions after the prayer in 2005. Mm -hmm. 
but it wasn't because they were, I bet I personally received any death threats. I did not. So mm -hmm. it's not been that severe. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it became popular because we were just starting with Google at the time. Mm -hmm. And literally, if you did a search of my name, in the first page, there was always this death threat watch that somebody had created. And so people clicked on it. And so it stayed on the first place forever. It's probably still out there somewhere, but I've endeavored mm -hmm. to uh, imbue uh, my digital presence with much more of the divine love mm -hmm. and stuff. So it has moved off the page. However, <clears throat> I have a lot of angst about the journey, uh, especially since so much of my journey was as a single mom, the journey that led people to focus on what was controversial and not take in mm -hmm. the whole picture of the reality that I've been a student of Islam actively mm -hmm. for 51 years. Mm -hmm. And as a student, I have learned some things and I am a feeling who has experienced some things and I'm a member of community who has networked on certain mm -hmm. things. And I have a field of scholarship that I've contributed to. Mm -hmm. And yet people don't read that. They like the controversy. In fact, I'm preparing to do what I'm considering to be in my last teach-in, a full webinar on my 30 years experience working on Hajar. Mm -hmm. Because when I did the work that I did it, as a quote-unquote objective academic, and yet the parallels in my own life and the suffering difficulties that I had trying to be an academic in a context where there's still Islamophobia, there's still racism, there's still sexism. Don't go and have an opinion that's also on the left. It's mm -hmm. like, oh. So I went through all of that and excelled as far as their markers go. But there was no comfort for me at night. I may be comforted my children and was comforted by their being comforted, but there was no comfort for me. And there were places where I felt really betrayed by the Muslim community where I was living. But because I have traveled in 60 countries and lived in six, I don't have a, a view of Islam that is limited to any one community, no matter how many ways we might also identify. So, for example, the African-American Muslim community is extremely conservative. Mm -hmm. So they should be my go-to community, but they have not been for me. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'm right now practicing gratitude in a certain way. I'm practicing an age-appropriate gratitude. Um, and that is that of the 10 members of my family, only two of us are left. And a brother of mine who died a few months ago lived to be 74. That's the oldest anyone in my family lived. Up until that time, uh, the oldest had only lived to be 69. Well, I'm having my 71st birthday next month. And so it means that every day that I live beyond my family, especially thinking about my mom and the females in my family who all died young, one in their 40s and one in their teens, that every day that I have, I must celebrate the achievement of having this opportunity. I've lived longer than my mother lived. And so I'm gifting to my mother what she did not 
get to have in her life as a way for me to express with gratitude that Allah has given me life. So sometimes when you're looking at things like the struggles that I went through, most of which I did not share, like I've never shared except one time, was literally the month in which we, I started quarantine. I left the UK and went into quarantine beginning of the pandemic, March of 2020. The first time I'd ever spoken in public about being in a marriage uh, with violence. I never spoke about it, but I worked on domestic violence issues. I worked on chronic passages that people use to justify it, but I never spoke about my own. So there was lots of things that I went through that I put a good face on because there was so much more good than the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And if there's ever, I mean, my first book is now also 31 years old. The idea, that little book, can exist for so long and still sell. And none of those, you are not Muslim because you are not like us kinds of Muslims, have been able to refute that book. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. So in a way, I have been given certain gifts and those gifts, I want to live in gratitude. I was um, given an opportunity for better education at the age of 14, which means I left my family and literally integrated my high school all-white graduating class, and there was only two of us in the whole school. The whole idea that intellectually I had something gifted to me that was unlike the rest of my family, none of my family ever went to the university. The next generation never went to the university. It was not until the third generation after that my family saw university education, and yet I went straight through the system uh, and then became a university professor. So in some ways, I was separated from my family because of this gift. And because of this gift, I have so much more joy than I have angst about the naysayers. They piss me off and say all kinds of four-letter words in their presence because I still got soul. But yeah, they're not my focus. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You're just not letting them take away from your presence and your life. And it's such a beautiful perspective because we can spend st- time stewing in anger and frustration, but where's that going to get us, right? So that's such a beautiful approach. And how do you recommend people who maybe have less patience or ability to see this beauty everywhere How do you recommend these people deal with the difficulties of seeing cruelty, of poor behavior, all these sorts of things that distance people from Islam? Yeah, I definitely start off by validating their experience. I never want it to seem as if we have different perspectives even on anger. Um, and I never wanted to seem as if I'm criticizing somebody because they are still angry. Mm-hmm. So I do validate their experiences, and I think that's really important. Um, but what I have learned is one of those things, because I learned it by experience. I didn't learn it because somebody told me. What I have learned is that you will not have peace if your focus 
is only on the negative. And I can make up enough negative about myself. So I have to also deal with that. It's not just the external stuff. And yet having people understand that you're working on the healing journeys, having people understand that the healing that you achieve, I want to say empowers you, but it lights you Mm -hmm. up so that you can be closer to your own capacity. The healing is for you. The serenity is for you. The turning and being present in the presence of Allah is for you. Allah does not need our worship in any form. So if we don't learn to, I mean, the one of the things that I do is I try to get people and give people tips about how to personalize your, your sacred practices, like I say, have a dedicated space in your house. I know the whole world's a masjid, but have a dedicated space because each time you go to that space, put your rug down or leave the rug down or whatever, you build up sacred energy in that space. And then when you return to that space, that energy is already charged and you get to sit in it. I have had, the first time I read a vision board, I was waiting for my uh, daughter to give birth to her second child and they went off to community center with other models and everything and they, they did a vision board and one of the things I put in vision board was that I would have a meditation room. Mm-hmm. I now live in a house where I have a meditation room. Wonderful. Uh, and it's just like I dreamt of this the idea that this room will be only for prayer and meditation. I don't do electronics and I don't do anything in that room except for do prayer and meditation. What a luxury. Mm. It's such a gift to myself. So I try to teach people that focusing on your spiritual well-being pays so much back to you and it pays the kind of revenue that no one can ever take from me. And so I don't want people to think about what you're working on, for example, with the healing journey as something that is simply a band-aid to repair something that was ripped. It is actually a way for you to reclaim your full integrity. Mm. And in that integrity, you understand, yes, you are the center of the universe. You are exactly one of my another kid's book, made by God, so I must be special. Like find the special with, within yourself. And you can't do it when you have all these scars. So the healing journey is about you reclaiming yourself through these spiritual practices, they give you the capacity to be at one with it. It's not a show that you're doing with somebody else. It's not uh, the mandate that your mother makes you do or your father makes you do or your wife makes you do or your husband. It is you claiming your own spiritual reality. And that is a well that never runs dry. What I'm hearing, thank you, this is absolutely beautiful. I definitely want to clip that part and share with people, especially. What I'm hearing is that this involves a lot of self-trust because to be able to drown out those voices, often people give more trust and validity to those voices than they do to their own soul, right? To be able to focus on yourself means you trust yourself and that you trust yourself over the voices. Is that what you're saying, basically? And and how do you get to a point of self-trust, I think? Because that's what a lot of people I speak to are struggling with. They're like, 
I think they're more valid. They're Orthodox Muslims. They must be more valid than me. I don't know anything about Islam. I'm just trying, but I don't know anything. Therefore, I can't trust myself. What do you say to people who say that? Yeah, I understand that because I'm a Muslim by choice, which is, in other words, a convert. And I think maybe for the first 20 years, I always thought that there was a thing that was, well, first of all, I thought there was such a thing as true Islam, which now I understand is a metaphor about utopia Mm -hmm. and we're striving. But I also thought there was a true Muslim and I wanted to be a true Muslim. And everything that I thought meant being a true Muslim was taken from the outside. And that's why I'm saying that it's extremely important for people to even understand how you are the vehicle of your own transformation. And you can't do it in the cacophony of all of your responsibilities. You got to fulfill them. I'm not ever, I'm PK, preacher's kid. Responsibility is the way we were raised. I'm not ever saying don't fulfill your responsibilities, but put yourself in the formula. And really dig deep to hear the still, small voice of Allah. Really dig deep. And when you have that presence in the presence of Allah, it does drown out all with the coffee. You become more adept even at fulfilling your responsibilities because you're not wasting time trying to please someone else, which if you think about it, it's a kind of sure. Like when people say to me, you're not Muslim. And I say, I don't want to be that kind of Muslim. I don't want to be the kind of Muslim that you are uh, using to assert nasty things about me, untruths about me mm-hmm. or whatever. If that's what you think Islam is, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I do have one advantage, and that is I literally spent 50 years in the study of Islam. So I have a lot of resources. And when I draw from those resources intellectually and spiritually, I realize, wow, it's such a shame. They're missing out on this wonderful gift that Allah has given us because they have such a narrow mind. So I think that the need for people to build their confidence that what is asserted as Islam through authority, like the authoritative voice of Islam, I mean, it has some reasoning behind it. It even has some source text, because that's the source text, I know. It has some source behind it. But the twist that is put on it so that it does not become the thing of love and compassion, that's all people stuff. And if you collect enough of that information, you can discern between what is true and what is people stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean everybody has to be stellar with Sloan. It does, however, require of you to make peace with yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to make peace with yourself. And for me, identifying, for example, as an eclectic Muslim was part of making peace with the fact that there are elements in my life that don't come from Islam and they are still important to me. I mean, I did my DNA studies, I don't know, some number of years ago, and I learned that of all the composites, 65% African, 35% European, that the single most 
degree of anything was Irish. And you know what I said? Oh, I guess that's why I like Celtic music. <laughs> and I have a Celtic cross on my altar. I keep that altar, for example. And the freedom that I now feel with regard to loving Allah, we can't buy it in store. It's so different from when I wanted to please everybody by being able to demonstrate that I know stuff. It's like, that's great. I'm, and I really do. I really am happy that I do know stuff, but there's nothing that really replaces working on a relationship with Allah that becomes authentic for you. And we're not taught to have a relationship with Allah. We're taught to follow the rules. Yeah. That's how Islam is given. And it's very difficult to teach something else, by the way, because it's like, well, well what are you teaching? <laughs> how do you verify it? But I, again, I had the legacy of my father. My father was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, but he really loved God. Mm. There was no doubt. I lived in the house with this man, and I know certain things. I don't know everything. Some things that, like, well, what was that? But mostly he presented himself in the house and in the street with the same kind of integrity. And that was my only aspiration when I became Muslim. It just got sidelined by my thinking that there is a real Muslim, and so I need to somehow be a real Muslim. Mm -hmm. And a, a real Muslim is always the dominant model, patriarchal, hegemonic, binary. And that, to me, is not Islam anymore. I, I did have a period of time where I kind of fell for it, but not anymore. Mm. So interesting. I'm just so grateful for you sharing this. You're known as one of the foremothers of Muslim or Islamic feminism, but I think also maybe what you're teaching now is liberatory Islamic spirituality. It's just beautiful and eclectic Islam, right? It's such a beautiful approach. As we wrap up, what pearls of wisdom would you want to share with people listening to the show? Wow. <laughs> that really puts you on the spot. Yeah, it's putting you on the spot. <laughs> I know you have a lot of lessons. You've shared so much wisdom with us, but if you could just share one or two deep lessons that you would like people to really keep with them. Okay. I guess I still feel on the spot. It's so, such a heavy, such a daunting past, girls of wisdom. I think uh, I have consistently said, since I've you know, been chatting with you, that we really have to learn to touch the depth of your own self, the pain, the sorrow, the joy, the misery, the wonder. You really have to touch the deepest part of yourself to find that is the place where Allah resides. Mm -hmm. And when you can be present with the presence of Allah, you will find a wholeness and a wellness in yourself that can never be taken away. So you, have, you do have to work at it, but it's in you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I think others will be as well. Dr. Mina Wadud, I so appreciate you and the work and legacy you've given to Muslims and many more people around the world who've benefited from everything. And thank you for sharing another side of you, the beautiful spiritual side that we need to hear more of. So looking forward to more conversations, perhaps, and, and hearing more pearls of wisdom in the future. So much gratitude.
Thank you so much for asking me. It was a challenge because again, I wanted to be authentic, but it's like, well, what can I say? So thank you for asking me. It was such a lovely opportunity. Thank you. Are you looking for help bringing more compassion into your life and letting yourself out of the box and into the real you? I'd love to support you on your journey. Check out my one-on-one and group coaching offers and sign up for my mailing list to receive updates about my offers. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook under Dr. Rosa Slan Coaching or visit my website, CompassionFlow.com. Oh.